You're listening to Circle of Hope Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2309 North Broad Street. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. I love living with a three-year-old. And, and people tell me she's great, so I believe them. You know, I know it from, for myself, but I hear good things, too. Shelby was telling me how photogenic she was. That's just, she doesn't get that from her dad, so that's good. Um, and I, obviously I love my kid, but she illuminates so much of the basics of life and life with Jesus for me. One thing she does, she follows instructions. This is, this is a big deal. And I'm grateful because I think she's a particularly uh, obedient three-year-old, relatively speaking. Um, and she's honored to follow them. She wants to do the right thing. And when she does and it works, she has something of an epiphany. If you talk to her, she'll tell you what she's supposed to be doing. Or at least give you an elaborate reasoning as to why she isn't. She'll at least tell you, here's how it's going, here's what I'm supposed to be doing, and here's the exception to why I'm not doing it. Just so you know, I've thought about this. And she, she, she's, uh, like last night, we decided she was old enough to take, there's a security knob on top of her doorknob, which just spins around. And you have to have some sort of a critical thinking skills to open it up. Or just you have to know the trick. You can go either way there. And we finally released the security thing off the knob. Now Elaine, in the middle of the night, is free to roam about the house. Big deal. She, can, she has the freedom to leave her room and, and roll around the house as she wants. This is like the moment in high school where your parents said, you don't have a curfew anymore. It's that kind of freedom for a three-year-old. This is the equivalent of that. She has the freedom now to go about her business in the house. She has a nightlight in the hallway because she's too short to reach the lights. So she needs something to illuminate her path. And she has a little owl lantern. That she can, it's really just a movable nightlight, but I like to think of it as a lantern. She can walk down. She goes down the hallway carefully so as not to disturb her sister. Agatha's a whole different ballgame. I predict much different things from her. But she, and she finds a place to put it in the bathroom. Not somewhere uh, wet, like not in the bathtub, or certainly not in the toilet directly. Not on the, the sink is risky, too, because your dad might have brushed his teeth there and got it all wet before he went to bed. Don't put it there. And, 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 of course, she had to test out her new freedom right when she got it. So five minutes after we put her to bed, go and potty. Got to just check out the new liberty I have here. So she walks down the hallway very earnestly. We think she's up to no good, but she is following the rules. She feels it. She's a big kid now. She woke up this morning saying, I'm a big kid. The big kid is here, is what she declared. Even speaking of herself in the third person, which is a high-level thing to do. Um, she's doing pretty good. After she had breakfast this morning, she had another epiphany. She found her, st there she is, photogenic. She uh, found her Jesus Storybook Bible. I don't know if I, I don't always 
you might be interested in this. I don't always agree with their translation, but whatever. It's good enough. I said, oh, not you, you. I, well, Bibles for three-year-olds are very interesting subjects for me. I'm very interested in that subject. Highly. You know, there's a, lot, there's, a, there's a lot there. At least Jesus is brown. That's like the best thing about it. You know, it's not some white Jesus. That's good for me. That, that's nice, you know, for once. Anyway. She looks at the cover of it, and she's, according to my, a reliable witness, my wife, and she says, J is for Jesus, G is for God. This is God. She's pointing to Jesus. So she's even making a little incarnational connection high-level thing to do, and she goes, and these must be God's friends. So she's not that far away from saying, I'm God's friend. And if you want to summarize 2,000 years of Christianity, you could say, God, I'm God's friend, and God is friends with you. We're, we're friends. We're just a mutual relationship here. God came to earth to be my friend. And through friendship, people can even know that God is their friend. When you befriend someone, you hold something inside of you that helps them to know that God is their friend, too. If that's too general for the whole Christianity thing, you could just say epiphany is about that. I think Elaine is figuring that out. And I do every day, too. It's still hard for me to connect to the incarnate God as he relates to me personally. And it is hard for Christianity at large. This is why we're always singing about song, uh, we're making God a king in songs, which is okay. And there is a time for that, but the mutual relationship is noteworthy. You know, if we always elevate him to some status, we don't even have kings in uh, the United States. And so king is almost otherworldly enough to undo the incarnation. It might be too lofty of a title for us. Getting it back down to friend can be helpful at times. But it, it's safer sometimes to get him distant. Um, but I want to get as close to him as I can. And I have to learn to do that every day, too. Epiphany just happened. It was Friday. Yesterday was Christmas for the, our Orthodox brothers and sisters. Today we're celebrating Epiphany. Um, so we're just p pushing it to the nearest Sunday. And the new promise, the new covenant that Jesus offers us by entering into the world incarnate in flesh as a person. Now, this is the time of year, at least the end of it, where we really remember the Incarnation. It's worth its own holiday, and it gets a couple during this time of year. It's a feast that honors Epiphany, the Incarnation of Jesus. It celebrates, it celebrates the fact that he became like us, came to earth to redeem us. Um, the East and West both celebrate it. So when I say the East, I mean the Orthodox Church. When I say the West, I mainly mean the Catholics, but I also mean all the Protestants, too. Um, when the Western Christians celebrate the feast, they're commemorating the coming of the Magi, the three kings. And occasionally they talk about Jesus' baptism and the wedding at um, Cana, turning water into wine. Eastern Church is all about baptism, all about uh, the baptism of Jesus. In both traditions, the essence of the feast is Jesus' manifest entry into the world, whether it's being recognized by these foreign powers in the Magi, beginning his ministry with baptism, or beginning his ministry with this miracle at the wedding. It's all about a start to a journey. It, um, 
it ultimately celebrates the incarnation of God and the person of Jesus. And it's through that incarnation that we're saved, saved from death itself, and are given a platform through which we can deliver the message. Jesus starts this grand proposition by being born, and he relates to us in his birth. We all share that in common, right? We were all born. In his birth, we see a humble infant. Jesus is a vulnerable baby who is ready to suffer with us for the sake of his gospel. He is someone who is strong enough to carry the world, yet humble enough to enter into it in the form of a baby. Someone that you can carry too. There's that closeness. Someone who brings us hope because he can so easily empathize with us. And we can so easily believe it. That he is trustworthy because he's a human. We know he's believable. He's genuine. He's relatable. He offers us uh, purpose. We can follow him. He's relatable. And so we want to be relatable too. You know, it's, it's a tricky thing there. Sometimes Jesus is just so real, so human, it's hard to believe he's God. And it's hard to believe that this man defeated death and gives us eternity. He wants us to be relatable, not just caught up in our own uh, loftiness, in our own subcultures, in our own worlds, in our own families, in our own schedules. Trying to fulfill a common good and a common vision for the world. I think we're called fundamentally to connect with uh, other people. The more relatable we are, the more we are fulfilling our calling. I hope we can find ways to be relatable to the people around us. Being born, for one, is helpful, but it's not enough. It helped Jesus out, but he had to do something a little bit more. I'm going to give you an example of someone who isn't relatable and then show you how Jesus is relatable just in the wedding feast at Cana. We're all humans, right? And uh, it might seem like a redundancy to say that we're called to relate, but we see often around us that people don't relate, or at least don't relate well. The latest exhibit, the president-elect. I'm going to mention Trump now. What? You seem to relate pretty well with a lot of people. Well, let me show you a way that he didn't. We can, this is, that, that, you just, you're stimulating me. I just want you to know. I just, I have a lot of ideas about that. And just, just winning an election doesn't mean you can relate. It just means you, you could relate better than the other one. So it's just like, you know, it's a, whatever. I'm getting all amped up. Let's focus. Now, I'm just talking about how he uses Twitter. Now, I don't object to Twitter to broadcast information in general. Like he was outlining, he was outlining his uh, plan to relate to Russia via social media. I think that's fine. I actually don't. I don't. Think, I don't particularly judge that. You think it's crazy? I think fine. People read it. You know, you're trying to get regular people to read your stuff. That's actually a good way to be relatable. But then, earlier this year on New Year's Day, he kind of he barbarically posted this tweet. Um, and declared a message of love 
And, and Mark Hamill really put a good voice to it. Now, you might know Mark Hamill as uh, Luke Skywalker. That's how I know him. But he was also the voice of the Joker in Batman the Animated Series. And he takes this rather unrelatable tweet of Donald Trump's, and he reads it in this just amazing voice. <laughs> I want you to hear it. So Mark Hamill was the Joker. The Joker and Trump aren't exactly relatable types. You know, Trump for who he is, the Joker for who he is. I don't think this is a good way to air your grievances. I think there's a fundamental problem with that. Um, never mind the, cont the politics for a second. Do you know what Donald Trump's doing right here in Twitter language? He is subtweeting. Do you know what subtweeting is? Indirectly tweeting about someone without mentioning their name, even though their name is not mentioned, it's clear who the person tweeting is referring to. It's like when you tweet anonymously about your ex. You know, and everyone just knows you broke up. Subtweeting. Donald Trump is subtweeting, and it's not okay. You know, it's just a bad way to relate, never mind the politics. At least name your enemy or call them up. Have a little dialogue. And before you throw stones or point out specks in your brother's eye here, <coughs> just take the moment of judging Donnie's subtweeting. And ask yourself uh, when you have done the same. Now, not all of you tweet. Before you pull the subtweet out of your brother's <laughs> eye, notice the one in yours, right? It's not that, it, that's the basic idea. We have relationship problems. And I don't really mean conflict, I mean just how we relate. You know, we meet our own needs, we forget, uh, we're so prone to compartmentalization, we forget with whom. We are destined to relate. We have a hard time praying. We don't even know who God is calling us to relate to. The answer is everyone, since we're all God's children. But you may want to note who you're most afraid to relate to and try doing it. More than just letting fear be the indicator, try to find out who you're too good to relate to. Too cool. Who are you neglecting that could use your friendship? There are people right in this room who could. How can you make yourself more relatable? How do you help people know you and know Jesus in a relatable way? I mean, I, I oftentimes wear the identity of Christ on my sleeves. It might not help people get from here to there if I just show it off. On the other hand, you might be so uh, hip, so cool, so down. 
that it seems like someone can't become your friend because they're not with it enough or trendy enough. Being a baby is easier. Being a human is a bit more normal. How can we lower our contexts enough to be relatable people? Like I was saying earlier, the long and the short of my job, and I think all of our jobs as Christians, is to help make knowing and following Jesus not just something crazy people do. We really want to get it down to normal. Make it easy. You know, it's not simple, it's not simplistic. Make it understandable. We need to become masters at it because there's a big deal at the end of it. Why should I share Jesus? Because there's the grand promise of our faith is eternal life. This is real. It's not made up. It's not a figure of speech, at least in my opinion. Jesus offers us eternity, and we need to develop the context to help someone actually understand it. He offers us the conquest of death. How does he do it? His first miracle, the wedding at Cana. The wine runs out. Everyone knows, at least at some parties, once the booze runs out, the party is over. Jesus gives them more of what they need anyway. Someone read this passage from John 2. Well, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for the ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed. The first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. That's, that's epiphany. That's the manifestation of Jesus. Signs that point to the reality of his uh, presence on earth. Thank you, Aaron. Isn't he demonstrating eternity now in a tangible way? He's a little worried about revealing who he is. My hour has not yet come. I'm not ready to show who I am. This is a complicated passage. There's a lot we could say about it. You know, you could also wonder why he's giving everyone more wine after they've had too much to drink, or at least as the master of the banquet implies. You know, different times, I suppose. Nevertheless, he's demonstrating eternity now in a practical way. On Epiphany, we celebrate the birth of Jesus again in his miraculous nature. And this compels us not just to believe, but to believe in him that there's enough to go around. He's undoing scarcity. There's enough love to go around. You can keep sharing the love of God because there's enough. He's defeated finiteness. Eternity begins now. The wine is never going to run out. 
This is really interesting for us to consider. For two, for one contemporary reason is that the sign of everlasting stuff is water here. If you can turn water into wine, it'll last forever. Unfortunately, in our context, not as true. If we keep polluting the water, it won't keep lasting. And so we've even spoiled the image in some ways. It's a really interesting problem. Nevertheless, he shows us this basic idea. You have to think about if he was doing this miracle now, what would be the, uh, what, what would be the everlasting element that he would uh, change into wine? Just the, I, don't, I don't have an answer for that, but it's some food for thought. Um, natural gas? Sorry. There is a lot of that, by the way. No, I'm just thinking what he's going to turn into wine. And I picked fracking gas. Oh. Ironic. Anyway. So does he turn that into solar energy? He could do that. I still think, you know, what's that? Oh, good. How far can I take it? The idea is he's showing the world that eternity begins now. The wine's never going to run out. In Eastern culture, he's saving the host from shame. Not having enough wine at your banquet's an act of shame and discourtesy. You know, this is a general Eastern idea too. When you host dinner, you don't want there to be, they want there to be leftovers. You want to be able to send some home with people. That's the idea. And even now, if you've ever had dinner at my house, there's always more than enough. I still have that kind of Eastern mentality. My parents are from Egypt. I still make more than I need to. Um, this is hard for us to understand, I think, now because we don't have much of a kind of similar generosity. Do you ever go to a party and it's BYO everything? <laughs> Bring your own food, too, sometimes. You know, like the, the generous host is just like, I'll leave the door open. You guys can come in, you know, but just bring your single servings of everything that you need for the party so that I don't have to like buy anything or you don't, you're not imposing, you know. And in the fridge, I have my drinks marked off or hidden, you know. They're hidden in the vegetable crisper so no one can find them. This, this happens. It's strange. We don't have an idea of being this generous. We have a sharing economy. It's really not about sharing. It's about being, everyone being self-sufficient. You buy your Uber ride. No one's sharing it with you. There's no sharing happening there. You gave them money, they gave you a service. You're just buying something. It's an interesting way to do it, but it's not particularly sharing. You know, sharing is like when you get a ride from your friend. That's sharing. Um, we don't even have a lot of public spaces anymore, or even public services. You don't take the bus, you call your Uber. Jesus is filling the need wherever he is. So the abundance covers us and completes us. I was just experiencing this lack of generosity the other day. My kids are on chip, so they got this health insurance from the government. And something happened where I had to make like a double payment. This is, very pro this is a big problem for poor people. I had to make a double payment on their uh, insurance so that it could be retroactively active in January because I, I made something, I made a mistake earlier on. And I'm a fairly facile person. 
and I can navigate their bureaucratic labyrinth better than most, to be honest. And one of my only skills is bureaucracy. And I have to make this double payment, so I have to pay more than I can afford in a single month to cover them for health insurance or else they get dropped. And I figured this all out in the office of this building that's hard to get to, hard to park around, all, this pro all these problems keep generating. It seems like our society uh, takes the poor as an inevitable by byproduct of capitalism and kind of discards them or uh, sees them as uh, an inconvenience. What's that? Yeah, a nuisance, that's the word, right? Just something annoying to deal with, exactly. Jesus takes the scraps that the elite have given us with their great act of philanthropy and does something bigger with them. In this case, a bunch of stone jars that are supposed to cleanse you, he fills with water and then offers the blood that cleanses us all. Makes something new out of them. There's a bigger image happening here if you read into the text a little bit more. He takes what we have and reconstructs it into something better. He literally takes what the Jewish people have and gives them something better. And it saves it's dirty us. Water. Hmm? Oh. It says fill the jars with water there, right? So what do you think? They were full and then they filled them a little more? I don't know either. The ultimate scrap that we have, Jesus turns into gold. He takes our destiny to die and makes it something more. He takes that which limits people, death, and makes it more. Death is the great equalizer. Even the Magi coming in all their power to see Jesus are equalized by death. They have all this political power coming from a foreign place, threatening political powers here in, in a right where Jesus was. It's so easy to gain our security, our conquest of death through resources, through excess. You know, you can distance yourself from death significantly. You can get a good job, good education, get a lot of uh, money, health insurance, live in the right place, live in a, a neighborhood that's not dangerous, whatever that means. Try to secure yourself as much as possible. And you live into your 80s and that's a good life. You've, you've forestalled death for as long as you can. And the most you can hope for your kids is that they do the same thing you did. You know, just avoid death for as long as possible. That doesn't really seem like a good life to me. That's a raw deal. Those are the scraps. You know, Jesus was tempted with all those same things. Religious power, political power, economic power. He was allured to get rich and get powerful, and he resisted it. And he voluntarily did so, and he uh, resisted the uh, circumstances that he was even in. Um, it's possible to think that the way that Jesus meets us and offers us hope is by giving us stuff. You could just take the parable and say, he's giving us infinite wine. Now we'll be safe forever. The wine doesn't save you. It's the power to make something eternal that saves you. It's easy to interpret the star that they followed in whichever way we want. Jesus transforms us and how we see fear 
and we start acting in world-changing ways. We start kneeling to worship, submitting to each other. We admit when we're wrong, we forgive each other, we do impossible things. Despite our power, despite our success, in spite of your privileges, we submit to each other. That's the radical transformation. With eternity at our hands, we still submit to each other out of love, not out of violence. Jesus has power, privilege, success, fortune, but he dares to be so humble that he can be relatable. The God of the world holds it all together and comes to us in the form of a baby. We don't need to fear death any longer. And, and when we really believe that eternity starts now, we're free to try and fail, to relate and conflict, to love and to suffer because we're held by a God who defeated death and grants us eternity. What's there to worry, worry about when King Jesus reigns, when the new kingdom is coming right here? What's there to fear when our eternal life begins now? That's the new covenant he offers, offers us. We're free because the shadow of death no longer hangs above us. God is with us. That means we're free to love and to love fully. You no longer need to operate out of your limitations. Out of the worry, the wine will run out. That's the new covenant. We can go and redeem the whole world, our ultimate purpose in life, because God has freed us. This isn't easy to believe. Kind of sounds hokey. Sounds like we're desperate. And for those of us who are too cynical to really believe it, we'll need some saving too. You know, for, for a lot of us, the reality of death is easier to grasp than for others. Right here at the end of the passage in Matthew 2, the slaughter of the innocent happens. King Herod orders the killing of all the children under two in the land. He's trying to kill Jesus. It's irrational. It's insecure. Sometimes the violence perpetrated by the state is that irrational. It's turning Jesus' family into refugees, just like it's happening in Syria. The real thing. And elsewhere in the Middle East, the killing that's happening in Turkey all the time right now, in a place that's becoming a war zone itself. It happened in Orlando this year. It happened last year when over a thousand people were killed by police in the United States. This is an astronomical number. Death is not a friend, it's an enemy. Our destiny is fulfilled when it's defeated. Each of us holds Jesus and his belovedness. And when one of us dies, that belovedness does too. That's why black lives matter. That's what we're talking about. It's because Jesus made them. And they hold belovedness. This epiphany, when we're celebrating the incarnation of Christ, let's fulfill our destiny together. Jesus did it by relating to us, by practically demonstrating his eternal power, by saving us from death, granting us the same freedom that is otherwise encumbered by our limitations of life. That sounds grand. I know. 
but it's doable and the world needs it. Maybe you need it too. Maybe we can uh, share it, just like Elaine got us started with, just knowing God's your friend and knowing that your friendship with someone else can impart that too. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect tab at circleofhope.net.